the first target of every false teaching is the supremacy of Christ. There are so many examples of this throughout the history of the church. We could go back to the ancient heresy of Arianism that taught that Christ is a lesser subordinate being to the Father, a created being who once did not exist. Today we see the same thing in Mormonism, which teaches that Jesus is a spirit child of God and teaches that the day could come when you could attain the same level that he has. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Christ is the highest created being. And it's not only the extreme cults that we need to look at in order to see that the supremacy of Christ is targeted. All false teachings try to lower the value of Christ. For example, Roman Catholicism proclaims orthodox truths about Jesus, but at the same time it teaches that we are saved both by Christ's work and our own works. And this overemphasizes our own abilities and it de-emphasizes the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his preeminence in our salvation. Such a teaching in the words of Paul in Colossians 2.23 leads to the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. Or we could look at modern liberal Christianity that acknowledges Jesus as a great teacher, perhaps even pays lip service to his role as the eternal second person of the Trinity. But practically, it denies his supremacy. It denies that Jesus demands our absolute devotion to him. That he is sovereign over all creation, over every atom that exists, and that all of life is to be lived for him and for his glory. So it is on this point, the supremacy of Christ, that the Christian cannot give an inch. We must be absolutely clear. We cannot dispute this. We dare not doubt and we will not deny that Christ, the eternal Son of God, is supreme. Now that is Paul's point here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And Paul was just talking about his prayer life. He's been going on about what he's been praying and what Paul oftentimes does when he gets on the subject of Jesus, Paul gets really excited. And so he just starts talking about Jesus. And that's exactly what we see here. He's been talking about his prayer life, but then he starts to talk about Jesus and he just gets excited to talk about this subject. But his wording is very precise. This isn't an unnecessary rabbit trail that Paul goes on. This is something that he's excited about and he has been very thoughtful, very intentional. So what we see in these verses from 15 to 20 is an ancient hymn. It's poetic language. Most likely, it is a hymn that has been composed by Paul himself in praise of Christ. But at the same time that it is a poem, that it is a hymn, it's a philosophical statement as well. Because in this hymn, Paul is going to address some of the greatest questions that you've ever thought about. Some of the most existential questions that philosophers have ever posed. Paul is going to answer them right here. Why are we here? What is the purpose of the universe? Where do we encounter the divine? Philosophers have asked questions like this for thousands of years. 
And Paul is confident that he has the answers. He tackles these questions head on. He doesn't go about it timidly. He's confident in his assertions about where we came from, why the universe exists, the role that God plays in these things. He's so certain that postmodern relativists can only shudder at his certainty. Now, as we look at this poem, Paul structures this poem in the form of a chiasm. And you're saying, what is a chiasm? Well, it's a type of literary construction that ancient writers would oftentimes use. And it's somewhat challenging to understand this as a chiasm when you look at the English text. However, the outline that we're going to use is somewhat based on this chiasm, so I want you to try to follow this with me. You can think of a chiasm like a sandwich. So you imagine a sandwich, and the first layer of the sandwich and the last layer of the sandwich are the same. It's bread. Top and bottom, bread. And then imagine that you put some mayonnaise on that bottom slice of bread, and right under the top slice of bread, you have some mustard on your sandwich. So now we've got some extra layers. We've got bread, and then we've got sauce, and then in the middle of the sandwich is the meat. Oftentimes in a chiasm, the center part of the sandwich, the center part of the chiasm is oftentimes there's a significance to it that makes it highlighted as the centerpiece. So that's kind of what we've got going on is we've got this literary sandwich. We've got the outer layers and then middle layers and then finally in the very center, a center layer, just like a sandwich. And that's what we're going to see here. So let me show you, look at your text in front of you in the Bible, the outer layers that are going to correspond to the bread in our sandwich illustration. It's gonna start in verse 15 with he is the image. And then in verse 18 where it says he is the beginning. Those two phrases begin each of those layers, the outer layers of this poem. And then the next layers that's gonna correspond to the sauce, the mustard and the mayonnaise in our illustration, starts in verse 17 where it says he is before all things and then in verse 18 where it says, he is also the head. So we've got that structure going on. And then the very center of this sandwich, the middle layer that would correspond to the meat in the sandwich is found in verse 17 and it is the single phrase, and in him all things hold together. So that's what we've got here going on in this poem that Paul gives us. Now that we understand that, we're going to hopefully understand the structure of this passage better. And I want you to see three triumphant proclamations about the supremacy of the Son. Three triumphant proclamations about the supremacy of the Son. The first triumphant proclamation is that the Son holds all authority in creation. We get that in verses 15 through the first part of verse 17. Paul begins his hymn by saying, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, we've only got to the very first phrase and we immediately come to our first of many theological questions that this passage is going to bring up. 
When Paul says that Jesus, or that, that Christ specifically, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, what does he mean by that? Now, when I read this passage for the first time, what I thought was probably going on is that he is saying, Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That seemed to be what's going on here. But there's a little challenge to that view, and that challenge is found in verse 16, where it says that for, by him, all things were created. So it says he's the image, but then it says for, because, all things were created, referring to a time before Jesus, before Christ had the visible body, before the time of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, we're talking about the pre-existent son. We're talking about Christ before his human body. And Paul says, even before his human body, he is the image of the invisible God. So what we have here then is a statement. It's a timeless statement. It is a statement that is always held true and will always hold true and currently holds true that the Son is the image of the invisible God. Even before he took on human flesh, now, one author helps us to understand this by speaking about what an image is. He says, in Greek philosophy, the image has a share in the reality that it reveals and may be said to be the reality. An image was not considered something distinct from the object it represented, like a facsimile or reproduction. It actually has a share in the very nature of the thing that it represents. And I think that this does help us to understand what it means that the Son is the image of the invisible God. He actually has a share, a, same, a sameness with the invisible God. What the Apostle is saying here is that all the glory, the reality of deity itself, is present in the Son. The Son is no secondary deity who comes in a few steps behind God the Father. He is actually the image. He even shares in the reality of the invisible God. Now, I was trying to think about this and come up with a human analogy. And you know what? There's no human analogy that can do justice to this. So I failed miserably. But the best that I could come up with, I was thinking... Despite all of its shortcomings, the analogy that came to my mind was identical twins. You think about identical twins, genetically, they are the exact same thing, genetically. They're different persons, and yet they share such a similarity that at a chromosomal level, they are the same. Now, we can pick that analogy apart, but hopefully it gives us at least some hint at what it is that Paul is saying when he says that the Son is the image of the invisible God. He doesn't let up. He doesn't make things easier. 
Because the very next phrase that he says is that the son is the firstborn of all creation. As if the first phrase wasn't hard enough, now we come to this. What exactly is he saying? Is Paul saying that Christ is the first creature that God created? Could it be that the ancient heretic Arius was actually right when he said, there was a time before Christ existed when there was no second person? Is that what Paul is saying by calling him the firstborn of all creation? Well, again, the answer is no. And again, verse 16 helps us to be certain about the answer because verse 16 shows us that it is by him that all things were created. So in other words, he's in an entirely separate class from all the rest of creation. Paul isn't saying, hey, he's the beginning of this class of created beings. No, whatever Paul's saying, he's clearly outside of the class of created beings. The word firstborn in the Bible can have two meanings. And it's important when we look at that word firstborn to understand which meaning is being used. It can have the meaning of first in time, as in literally being born before someone else is born, meaning first in time, but it can also have the meaning of first in authority, having a first position before another thing. So we see this, for example, in the book of Psalms, verse chapter Psalm 89, verse 27, where God says that he will make the Messiah my firstborn. And then he clarifies what that means, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So in this case, that being firstborn refers to a place of prominence, preeminence over the other kings of the earth. Now it is true that the son is first in time because he's literally existed from eternity past. So from a temporal standpoint, he has always existed. But here the focus that Paul wants us to see is he has the first position. He has the first rank. He's the highest in rank. We could rightly translate this, he is the firstborn over all creation. He has a rank over the rest of creation. So, bringing this to our own time, our own day, what do we want to talk about? What seems out of control for us today? The weather? Paul would say Christ has authority over it. Wars breaking out in the world? Christ has authority over it. Difficulties and trials in your own life? Paul would say Christ has authority over it. He is in this preeminent position as the firstborn over all creation. I'm reminded of what Abraham Kuyper said. Speaking of the authority that Jesus has over everything, he says there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. It's all under him. It is his. He is the firstborn over all creation.
Now we get to verse 16, and Paul explains why it's appropriate for us to refer to the Son as the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Right here in verse 16, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. In other words, Paul says the creation of Christ implies his authority over it. And you don't want to gloss over this because this is a very important point in Pauline theology. If you want to understand how Paul thinks about the world, in fact, if you want to understand how it is that Paul will preach the gospel to pagans, he often starts this way by saying, God created you, therefore you're accountable to him. In this case, he is the authority over everything because he created everything. It's as simple as that. All things were created by him. And this extends both to the visible things and the invisible things, the things in the heavens and on earth. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of it. Now we can tell from passages like Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that Paul is not here referring to human rulers of this world when he refers to these thrones, these dominions, these rulers, authorities, individuals with great power. And he's not talking about the president or kings or prime ministers. He has his eye on something that we rarely think about. Angels, spiritual beings, who holds sway over spiritual power. When Paul refers to these creatures, he can be referring to the whole lot of them, the good and the evil, but he generally refers to this group and highlights those who use this power for ill intent. So Paul is saying, in other words, that the Son created... And he even has authority over, in the words of one man, unseen forces working in the world through pagan religion, astrology, or magic, or through the oppressive systems that enslaved or tyrannized human beings. Here is a reference to the evil powers that use human structures, human beings, and human institutions to perpetuate evil in our world today. Paul says even those Those thrones and dominions, those rulers and authorities, they were created by Christ. And he is Lord over them. In a world where we see evil perpetuated on such a vast scale, this is a calming truth for the Christian. The world is not out of control. Everything has been created by Christ and everything is under the authority of Christ. All things have been created through him and for him. So he reiterates that. He is the agent of creation, but there's also more to it. He is the purpose of creation. Not only have all things been created through him, they've also been created for him. Everything exists with an endpoint, a goal. This isn't art for art's sake. It exists for the sun, 
for his glory, for lifting him up. And so in coming eternity, you're going to find that everything has happened for the glory of the Son. The details of your life that appear to have no purpose, no meaning, you look at the puzzle pieces and they don't seem to fit together and then you put a few of them together but it doesn't seem to be making any kind of picture but you get enough of the puzzle pieces together and you step back and you get to the point where you're looking at this in eternity and you'll see it was all designed for the Son. It's for Him. There is a purpose to it. For Him. He is before all things. What Paul says here is very similar to what he said about Christ being the firstborn of all creation. By saying that he's before all things, he's saying that his rank in time as the pre-existent eternal son of God gives him the first rank in authority over everything. Because Christ existed before all things in eternity, so he exists before all things in his rank. He outranks everything. So this is the first triumphant proclamation about the Son's supremacy. The Son holds all authority in creation. And then we get to 17b, the second half of verse 17, and we see the second triumphant proclamation. The Son holds all together in himself. Now, this is going to be a very short point. We've only got one phrase to go through for this point. But like I said, the chiasm, where we've got that sandwich, this is the meat of the sandwich. It occupies the center point in this poem that Paul has written. And so Paul is highlighting it by the structure that he has used. The son holds all together in himself. This is how supreme Christ is. That even the universe itself would cease to cohere apart from him. In the words of one man, he keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos we could almost be justified to use the words of another individual who refers to Christ as a kind of divine glue or spiritual gravity that holds creation together. As odd as it may sound, reality itself does not have an existence apart from Jesus Christ. It is dependent on him. That is how dependent you are on him. That is how dependent the universe is on him. Everything holds together in him. So how can we possibly stand when people speak against Christ? When people downplay him and they don't realize that the very universe itself is holding together because of him. The very breath that they are breathing, that they are using to talk against his supremacy is being given to them by him. 
How can we stand by and think that this is not a matter of the highest importance, the supremacy of the Son, when everything, existence itself, holds together in Him? That, Paul says, is how important, how supreme the eternal Son of God is. It's a triumphant proclamation. So we saw the Son holds all authority in creation, and then this one. It's short, it's sweet, but it's foundational. The Son holds all together in himself. And then we come to a third proclamation about the supremacy of the Son. The Son holds all preeminence in eternity. The apostle says he is also head of the body, the church. Now what changes in verse 18, something dramatic changes in this poem that Paul has been writing. Up until now, when Paul talks about reality, he's talking about the original creation that God made, everything that God has made, the creation, the universe. But now there's a shift from the original creation that we read about in the book of Genesis to the new creation which God has initiated in the world and which is found with its focus point as the church, the people of God. Here Paul says that Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. And this is similar to where he said that he is the firstborn of all creation. He occupies the supreme place in all creation. But now he's saying he occupies the supreme place, the place of head, the place of authority in the body, in the new creation, in the new creation that God is initiating in the world. We could also translate this as head over the body. That would be a legitimate way to translate this as well because it indicates the sense of preeminence, the sense of authority that Christ has over the body which is the church. But there is an interesting thing here that we see. By calling him the head of the body, a head is always connected to the body. That's how life exists. It's interesting that while Jesus, the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is indeed in this place of authority as the firstborn over all creation, Paul uses more organic language to refer to Christ as the head of the body or the head over the body. He's indicating a sense of connection that God's people have with him. We don't just approach him as a distant God. He's the general creator and authority over all of creation, but he is the head of us who are the body. And that is how we as the church can approach him. His care and love are actually centered on the body. And he is the beginning. Now this has a very similar meaning to when Paul said that he is before all things. He's the beginning. He comes first, and because he comes first, he has the highest role, the highest rank. But here, the emphasis is in the new creation. Just as he is before all things in the original creation, so he is the beginning in the new creation. And he is the firstborn from the dead. Now we've got to go back. 
because we talked about firstborn before and I said there's two meanings to the word firstborn. First in time, first in rank. Both of these meanings are probably being used here, but here the emphasis is more on time. He's the first in time from the dead or literally from among the dead, from the group of people who are currently dead. He is the firstborn from that group of people. He's the first who is resurrected. And again, his first in time will indicate his first in authority. The resurrection of Jesus sets in motion a series of events which is ultimately going to culminate in the resurrection of all of God's people. But each of these descriptions is pointing to the significant role that Christ has in the new creation of God, in what God is doing in the world. Not only the authority over all creation, but specifically the authority over the new creation. Some of you may have had the opportunity to be in the center of world events. Maybe some, something big was going on in the world and you had the chance to be right there. If you've ever had that opportunity, you've probably had this sense of excitement. This just, it's fascinating to be in the center of what's going on. When events of worldwide proportion are happening right around you. For Paul, the church is the center of God's working in the world. It is the epicenter of where the divine is encountering the human. And so if you've ever had that experience of being in the center of world events and you think of the excitement that surrounds that, the sense of anticipation of like, oh my goodness, I'm literally where everything's happening, that's what the church is. That's the sense of excitement that you should have in the church. Because Paul, by referring to this new creation that God is working, that God is creating, it's centered around the body. And Christ is the head of the body. All of this is happening within and beginning from and through the church. It's the epicenter of God's work. And Christ is the head of that. There's a reason why we see Christ being the head of the new creation. He says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So the whole purpose of the new creation is for the son to have the preeminent position. But this hasn't yet happened. Wait, what did you say? <laughs> That's right, I said, this hasn't yet happened. We don't currently see the son in the preeminent position. It's been explained this way. The puzzle is caused by sin. Though always Lord by right, he must become Lord in fact by defeating sin and death. And Paul says this is the end result. This is what God is intending to do. This is the direction that God is moving history. Verse 19, it was, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, a quick look at chapter 2, verse 9, clearly explains what this is a reference to. The fullness is the fullness of deity. And this is temple language. This is the terminology that the Jewish people would use to talk about God's presence in the temple. Paul says, God's presence 
that Jewish people think of finding in the temple, God's presence is actually found in the Son. The fullness of deity dwells in the Son. So where do we encounter God? Not in a temple in Jerusalem, but in the Son. It appears that the Colossians were being misled. They were told that they could encounter God through complicated ascetic rituals. And Paul says, that's not where you encounter God. You encounter God in the person of the Son. Because in him, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So do you wish to encounter God? Paul will tell you where to find him. The Son. Study the Son. Read the Gospels. Reread the Gospels. Become a student of him. Memorize passages from the New Testament that describe his atoning death. Study the Old Testament. Read commentaries on it. Ask people questions about it. Learn how the Old Testament points to the Son. Examine the life of Christ in the Gospels. Become a student of the Son. And Paul says, there you will find the fullness of deity. And through him, verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself. So just as Christ created all things originally, so now he is in the process of reconciling all things to himself. Now, is Paul preaching a universal salvation? That everyone is eventually going to become a believer in Christ and there will be no, no need for hell, no anger, no wrath of God? Is that what he's saying by reconciling all things to himself? No, it's a little more complicated than that. This idea of reconciling all things to himself happens in two different ways. For some, Christ has the preeminence as they see his beauty and they worship him and they turn from their sin. But for others, Christ has the preeminence as they are forced to acknowledge his lordship. Paul said that a day is coming when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we can think of it this way. Presently, Christ is the sovereign over the whole kingdom. The whole realm is under him. But there's a problem. There are still rebel bands out there. And eventually, some of these rebel bands are going to joyfully lay down their weapons and with thankful hearts be reconciled to the king and go on to serve him. And then other rebel bands, he will track them down. He will surround them. He will imprison them. He will bring them to justice. And they will have no choice but to endure his lordship. But either way, the whole kingdom will be pacified. And everything will acknowledge his lordship. It's a pacification that God is causing of all things. This happens having made peace through the blood of his cross, both by bringing sinners to repentance through his death and by defeating Satan 
and all the forces of evil. But at the same time, we have this interesting contrast that happens here. We go from the heights of the glory of Christ to the squalor and the misery of death on a cross. And that's the cost of your reconciliation to the highest God through blood on a cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, this is the hope, this is the expectation, an eternity in which Christ is preeminent. And doesn't that fit with what we heard about this morning? A future hope of all things being pacified, all things in obedience, acknowledging the lordship of the Savior. So these are the three triumphant proclamations that we see here about the supremacy of the Son. The Son holds all authority in creation. The Son holds all together in himself, and the Son holds all preeminence in eternity. Just like the Colossian believers, our faith is constantly bombarded by low views of Christ. We are told by false teachers in the culture around us that Christ is a myth, that he is one of only many great teachers in the world, that we don't need him to be saved, or that we can do something alongside him to contribute to our own salvation. We're presented with false Christs, false descriptions of Christ, false versions of Christ, but it is on this point in particular, the supremacy of Christ that we must hold fast. Every assault is directed against this glorious truth, but we cannot capitulate. The Son is supreme. Pray with me. How do we praise you, Christ, for your glory? A glory that has existed from eternity and will exist to eternity. The glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. We confess ourselves to be your people. We pray for your grace. We acknowledge you as Lord. We acknowledge your authority over all creation and especially over us. And may we live this week in honor to you, head of us, the body, the church. Amen. As we close out our time together in song.